0: You guys can turn to James chapter five. James chapter five. Well, pretty exciting night last night. I am, <laughs> I am under no delusion. I understand that for many of us we're gonna be a little distracted today because we are still reveling in the incredible win of Johnny Manziel last night. Pretty, pretty heady stuff for Texas A and for those of us who've been Aggies for a long time. Last night felt like vindication. Like years of second-tier football status, and all of a sudden we've got a billboard in Times Square. That's awesome stuff. So really exciting, but I hope that we can focus up for just a little bit so that we can finish the book of James well. We're going to finish it this morning. I want us to finish strong as we look at the second half of James chapter 5. Now, when I was at a and many years ago, one of my favorite classes at a and I took it a number of times, was golf. Love taking golf because you get to be outside, which is awesome. Really enjoy golf. I was never good at golf, though. I never got good despite taking it multiple times. Uh, I never got to that point where you actually start to care about the score. All I cared about was getting to the 18th hole still having a ball to play with, because usually I lost a ball every hole, and so I had to time it right to make sure I could finish the course. Uh, I was never good at golf, but I did learn the rules of the game. I learned the rules, and, and chief rule out there, I learned the cardinal rule of golf, if you are playing poorly, that means that you need to buy a new club. That's the that's a rule I saw most of my classmates practice. If their game wasn't going well, it meant they needed to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a new club. Guys would show up with this four five, $600 titanium graphite driver convinced it would win the game for them. There's a, a lot of money to be had in that business if you weren't aware of that a good business to go into because to play golf, you need a lot of clubs. You need a variety of clubs to play the game. You can't putt with a driver and you can't drive with a putter. You can't get out of a sand trap without a wedge. You can't play a fairway without a decent set of irons. You, you need a variety of clubs. You got to have a lot of equipment to play the game of golf. Because different situations call for different equipment. And this morning, what James is going to talk to us about is that life is similar to the game of golf. Different scenarios, different situations in life demand different equipment, different tools, different ways of dealing with the challenging scenarios we face in life. And so this morning, as we look at the second half of James 5 and finish off the book, James is going to be as practical as he always is. James is always practical. He is going to practically instruct us how to face four distinct scenarios that that you will encounter in life. Guaranteed, you're going to face these four scenarios at some point in life. James is going to tell you how to walk with the Lord and follow Christ in times of suffering, in times of satisfaction, in times of sickness, and in times of sin. So those four scenarios are what we're going to look at this morning. And I'm excited to look at this passage today because I think that what James is going to to teach us as we walk through these four scenarios will be particularly applicable to all of us on Christmas break. You're about to head out. Students, you're about to leave, go wherever you live. Uh, Adults, you will be in and out of town with holidays and preparation and all the Christmas stuff going on. We're going to be really busy people. I think James wants us to have his instruction in these four scenarios in mind as we go through Christmas break this year. So uh, let's jump right in. Scenario number one that James wants to teach us how to deal with is suffering. When you suffer, when a friend or family member, a fellow believer suffers, how do you respond to that suffering, to that hardship? We learn the answer right at the beginning of verse 13. James says, is anyone among you suffering, then he must pray. Now, no surprise, the way to respond to suffering is to pray, to turn to the Lord in prayer. You're you're to pray consistently, you're to pray regularly to the Lord. That's no surprise to us, of course, when we're suffering or someone else is suffering. The first and most vital step is to pray. Pray for ourselves, pray for them. Now, let's ask, what exactly are we supposed to pray for? When you suffer, when times are hard, what should you ask God to do? Well, it is appropriate, it is biblical to ask God for the suffering to end good for you to ask that God would bring this pain in your life to an end or pain in in the life of a fellow believer to an end we see that in Jesus' own life in the garden of Gethsemane as he was about to go to the cross Jesus prayed Matthew 26 he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me yet not as I will but as you will So Jesus is showing us it's appropriate when you suffer to pray for the suffering to end. But even more important than that prayer, when you suffer, pray for joy and strength to endure it if it doesn't end. That's the most important prayer. Pray that God will give you the strength, the wisdom to endure whatever suffering he brings into your life, that he allows into your life. We saw that actually at the beginning, chapter one of the book. If you turn back to chapter one, right there at the start, verse two, trials, suffering is is where James begins the book and ends the book. Chapter one, verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now that's hard to do. It's hard to consider a trial joy, and so look at verse five. James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom to count a trial joy, then let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So when you suffer, even more important than praying for the suffering to end, pray for wisdom to be able to count that suffering joy, to be able to endure that suffering faithfully. That's what we see God's people praying for throughout Scripture. Uh, In the book of Acts, the early church suffered often. They faced a lot of persecution. And and we get these really incredible, intense moments where we see them pray in the middle of suffering. And, And here's how they prayed. So Acts 4.29. After being persecuted, they pray, Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They don't pray for relief. They don't pray for escape from the suffering and persecution. They pray for strength to endure, strength to be bold witnesses in the midst of persecution and suffering. See, an incredible example of that in a guy named Brother Yun, I don't know if you guys have ever read or even seen a book called The Heavenly Man. It's a biography out about a guy named Brother Yun. He is uh, one of the, the house church leaders in China. So lots of house churches uh, reported to this guy at one point. He's actually in exile now. He can't go back. to to China. He suffered greatly for his faith. He was imprisoned for years. He was tortured and beaten multiple times. And yet this is what he prays. This is what he asks us to pray for him and for the church in China. Do not pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and power. So in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, the most important thing to pray for is strength. And that, that actually flows out of what we studied last week. Remember, what did we learn last week? That all of life is painful. Every stage of life is painful and then you die. That's this life. And so when you suffer, you pray for the suffering to end, but you recognize in this life, our lot is to suffer. That's just life on this planet. And so in the midst of my suffering, the most important thing to pray for is faithfulness to endure, faithfulness to, to walk with God in the midst of my pain. Okay, so when we suffer, or when other believers suffer, let us pray. Let us lift our needs to God, praying if it's his will for the suffering to end, but even if it doesn't, for joy and strength to endure in the meantime. So scenario one is suffering. The second scenario that James lays out for us is satisfaction. It's the exact opposite of suffering. What do you do when life is good? What do you do when life is rosy for you? You are are happy and cheerful about your life. God is blessing you and everything is as you desire it to be. How should you respond to that scenario? Look with me at the second half of verse 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? That means happy. He is to sing praises. So when life is good, when life is rosy, you are satisfied, you are happy, the right response is to sing praise to God. To sing songs of praise or songs of exaltation to God. Now, uh, sing praise It's the Greek word salo. It's where we get the word psalms from. And so uh, this idea to sing praises, what James is challenging us to do is to sing songs or hymns or psalms that exalt God, that lift God up and celebrate who he is and what he's done. And that singing can be with or without musical accompaniment, but it's always singing so that other people can hear. This word solo, it's not not singing in your closet or in your car when you're alone. It's always singing for other people to hear. That's the idea of the word, whether that's here at church or with your family, your friends, wherever it might be. The right response to God blessing you is to sing songs of praise for other people to hear. And you see that throughout scripture. You see this command to, to sing songs of praise to other people when you are doing well. You see that in Ephesians, for example. As Paul describes the spirit-filled life, he says, be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Okay, so when, when life is good, When you are happy, when you are joyful, you should respond by singing praises to God. Now, unfortunately, that's not what we tend to do. Unfortunately, human nature is such that when life is good, when life is happy, when life is rosy, we typically do not think to sing songs of praise to God. We, we tend to, to do something else. You see it throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Judges. If you've never read Judges, um, it's a really depressing book. I'm not recommending that you read it this holiday season, but at uh, some point you should read Judges, and, and it's really depressing because there's this pattern that happens. Uh, God's people sin, and they get oppressed because of their sin, and then they cry out to God for deliverance, and God delivers them miraculously, and then how do they respond? What do they do after God delivers them? Well, you see it. In in one of the instances, God had just delivered his people from the Midianites, and here's how they respond. Thus, the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They don't remember. They forget him. They remember him when they're in pain, but they forget him when life is pleasant. You see that repeated in the New Testament, for example, in Luke 17, Jesus heals 10 lepers. As he, that is Jesus, entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Remember, leprosy it was not healable in the ancient world. This is a miracle. Their lives are transformed miraculously. And then what happens? Now, one of them when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, that is, praising God, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner. So when life is hard, they pray. When they're in pain with leprosy, they pray, they think about God, they cry out to God. But when life is good, when they're healed, nine of the ten forget God. And that's, that's exactly what, what we do as well. I, I do it myself. How many times have, have I been in the van with my family about to leave our driveway to, to head out of town to Dallas or Austin? We're going to visit relatives. And in our driveway, I will pray. I'll pray for safety and God's blessing as we travel. When you're traveling with twins, you've really got to pray. And so I will pray for God's help. Um, but when I get there safely, how often do I think to praise God? Now, almost Never. I forget what God has done. I'm too busy unloading the van to remember God, to think about God, to praise God. That is human nature. When life is painful, we think about God. When it's pleasant, we don't. That's the tragedy that James is pointing out to us, that God gets more of our attention when life is painful than when it's pleasant. It should not be that way. The ironic thing is, is you know this, if on the way to Dallas we got in a car wreck, you know I would not be forgetting God. I would be crying out to God and praying to him in the midst of whatever pain came through that accident. But when life is good, I don't think about him at all. So James is challenging us. When life is good, when it's pleasant, when it's happy, we are to sing praise to God. We're to sing songs or hymns or psalms to one another so that we can all hear. That's the idea. And let me give you some practical ideas. This, this can be applied. This can be lived out here on a Sunday morning. When we sing together, if you are participating, if you are meaning the words that are coming out of your mouth, that counts as praise to God. We're singing that together. But you don't have to wait for Sunday morning to do that. You can sing songs or hymns or read the Psalms as a family, to praise God. You can do it in a small group. I remember one of the most enjoyable things of growing up in my neighborhood, we had a home church in our neighborhood as, as part of the Bible church we went to. It's about four or five families. We gathered together like every other week growing up and, and we would study the word and we would pray together, but we would always sing together as well. It was an opportunity to express praise to God. Um, I, I saw it again when I was here at A&M. It was a, a neat tradition. I don't know if you students still do this, but for a while, while I was at A&M, um, students started kind of spontaneously gathering at Sol Ross to, to worship, to sing praise. So on a Thursday night or a Friday night, somebody who could play guitar reasonably well would go out there and students would gather and sing. It was an opportunity to sing together praises to God. So, so sing songs of praise. Now, I, I think you can actually apply this passage in a new way. Uh, I think that God has given us some, some technological tools that allow us to do this. I think Facebook and Twitter can be an opportunity to do this. You can share songs, hymns, or psalms of praise with one another electronically. This holiday, to encourage one another and share what you're grateful for that God has done in your life. So when God blesses you, the right response is to sing songs of praise. Now, last week I quoted from one of my favorite movies, Princess Bride. This week I'm going to quote from another favorite movie, Elf. If you've not seen it, you've got to see it. We watch it at least two or three times every Christmas season. Uh, what is rule number three for all Christmas elves? The best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing loudly for all to hear. Okay. <laughs> Very well. I'm actually, I'm actually excited that many of you have memorized that. And this is why out of a really silly movie that has nothing to do with eternity, that one line should stand out to you. That one line is actually biblical. I don't know if you realize that God designed you to resonate to music. It's just the way he designed human beings. And so the way that you share joy with one another is through song. That's the the amazing blessedness of music is that you can pass on your joy to others through song, through hymns, through psalms. God designed you when life is good, when you are blessed, when you are happy, God designed you to share that happiness with all of us through song. So when, when God blesses you, respond by singing praises to him for others to hear. That's the second scenario that that James looks at in life, the scenario of satisfaction. The third that he looks at is sickness. What do you do when you face sickness in life? And when James is talking about sickness here, he's not talking about a cold not talking about a backache. He's not talking about something that you take a pill for, get a good night of sleep, and you wake up feeling great. He's talking about a serious illness, something that is chronic or very painful or even terminal. He's, he's talking here about things like uh, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, a slipped disc, something that is really affecting your life and may cost you your life. So when you are seriously ill or when someone you know and love is seriously ill, how do you respond to that sickness? Well, Let's look at uh, at the passage starting in verse fourteen. Let's read fourteen to sixteen. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There's a number of steps, actually. Three steps. That James lays out for us for how we respond to serious illness. He doesn't put them in chronological order, so we'll kind of rearrange them to put them together. Three steps when you face sickness or when someone who you love and and hold dear is sick. The first step shouldn't surprise us. Sickness is a type of suffering, and so what is the first thing you should always do when facing sickness? You should pray. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Ask God to heal. Ask God for strength in the midst of that, in the midst of that sickness or Ill, illness. And so James challenges us to pray for ourselves when we are sick. And then if you're seriously ill, to also ask others to pray for you. Verse 16, we should be praying for one another. So when you're sick, you should not keep that private. Don't try to be strong and bear it and let no one know, but share with others so that they can pray for you as well. We should be praying for one another continually, praying for the sick here in our in our fellowship, in our body. And the reason, James tells us, why we should pray, right there towards the end of verse 16, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The reason we pray is because prayer brings healing. Prayer works miracles. When when you pray for someone who is sick, God can do miraculous things because prayer is how you tap in to the miracle working power of God. Scripture is is clear. God is the great physician. God is, is the doctor who can heal every disease. He is not limited to the means of modern medicine. He can heal anything, even that which is chronic, even that which is terminal. It says in Psalm one hundred three, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all of your iniquities and heals all of your diseases. God can do anything, God can heal any disease, even that which to us seems irretractable, God can cure. And we tap into that miracle working power of God through prayer. So you, you pray because God works through prayer to heal. And, and the result of that, into verse 16, it leads J- James to say, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Or as the Net Bible translation puts it, the prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness great effectiveness, more than medicine, more than doctors, more than surgeons. Prayer has supernatural effectiveness and power to heal. Now, now who is this righteous man who James is talking about? That's, that's any believer walking with the Lord. Any one of us who's trusted in the gospel and is walking with Jesus Christ, prayer is available to us as a miraculous power to heal, whether it's to heal us or heal someone we care about. And James proves that to us in the next couple of verses. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. James proves it by pointing at Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, what you need to understand is, to Jews, Elijah is Superman, they, they basically view that the guy could do anything. Elijah, really pretty amazing life. If you read about him, he did amazing miracles. And then the guy didn't die. He got taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And then he shows up again on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. He's an awesome guy. I mean, just really stellar, super kind of heroic guy. And yet, what is James' point? He's no different than any of us. He's a human being like any of us. The amazing, miraculous things Elijah did were not through any power that he possessed. They were through prayer. He simply did what any of you can do. He prayed and God showed up. God did miracles through Elijah's prayer just like God will do miracles through your prayer. That's why we pray for one another because prayer works miracles. Many of you have been praying for the Hearn family might have heard about them. Um, the Hearn family, the uh, Brett and Jen Hearn are a little bit younger than Julie and I. Uh, they had twins four months ago, twin girls. And one of them, Avery, was born with an aggressive, inoperable brain tumor. And so they were prepared that she may not even make it to delivery. She probably won't make it through delivery. And even if she does, she won't live long. And yet here we are four months later. And if you follow their page, you know, girls doing awesome. She's trucking along, she's beautiful, she's putting on weight, she's having this wonderful time with her dad and her mom, and the doctors are stunned. They took her off of hospice care, even though she has this aggressive inoperable tumor in her brain, she's doing great. Why is she doing great? Why is she having this time with her family? Well, I think it's because like 5,000 people are praying for her. They have like 5,000 people on their Facebook page praying regularly for this little girl and prayer works miracles. Now, I don't know whether God is gonna heal Avery. I don't know if God is gonna give her a long life, but I do know that whatever God does in her future, he has already worked a miracle in that little girl's life, giving her four blessed months with her parents because prayer works miracles. Not only does prayer work miracles in the realm of healing, it works miracles in every realm. We have a pastor here at the church who has been praying for his dad's salvation for 35 years. A week and a half ago, he believed. His dad got saved a week and a half ago after 35 years of prayer. Why? Because prayer works miracles. You got to persist in it. You have to practice it over a long period of time. But God works miracles through prayer. So we pray for one another. That's the the first step when we're sick is we pray for one another. The second step when we're sick is that we confess our sins to one another. You may have noticed that, that connection between sickness and sin. James talks about confession right here in the midst of healing, and he he doesn't really detail the connection, what's going on there. We have to look at other passages of scripture to see how sickness and sin are related, and what we learn from looking at the Bible as a whole is that sometimes sickness is the result of sin. So you look at the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Well, this particular sin that Paul's talking about. The Corinthian church did a lot of things wrong, but this particular thing is that they got drunk during communion. And, and God is not happy about that. And so Paul says, because they were getting drunk during communion, for this reason, many among you are weak. That's physical weakness and sick and a number sleep. And when he says sleep, that's just a euphemism for Die. Okay, so their sin has resulted in sickness that if untreated will result in physical death. So sometimes sickness is a result of sin, but not always. Not not even usually is sickness the result of sin. You see that in the book of John. And he, that is Jesus, passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man and his parents, that he would be born blind? Because that's what they thought, that sickness was always the result of sin. But Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, so sickness is not always a result of sin. It's not even usually the result of sin. But James says, because sickness is sometimes the result of sin, when you are seriously ill, you should confess your sins. That's how you deal with sin in your life is you confess it. And, and if this sickness that you are suffering from happens to be the result of sin, you got to deal with the sin first and you deal with it by confessing your sins to one another. That's the idea that James has for us here. And when he talks about confessing our sins to one another, that's, that's not talking about confessing to a priest or confessing to a pastor. It's what we commonly call confessing to an accountability partner. What James is challenging us to do is every one of us should have one or two accountability partners in life. That's a a believer who is mature and of the same gender you should practice accountability with. So on a regular basis, every week or every other week, you should be confessing your sins to one another and holding one another accountable because that confession is often the means through which God brings healing. Okay, so practice accountability. Confess your sins to one another. That's the the second step that James lays out as we deal with sickness in our lives. The third step that he lays out is to call the elders. When the sickness progresses and it gets really serious, call the elders. And and you may notice in verse 14, when it says that you have to call the elders, the idea here is that you are so sick that you can't go to the elders, You have to call them to your bedside. At this point, the sick person is bedridden. They're facing something that is probably terminal and they call the elders to come and pray over them. It pictures them actually standing over the person, laying hands on them and praying for them. And and as we look at what the elders do here, it's important to recognize James is not saying that, that the elders have some magical power in themselves. It's not about the elders. Our elders at Grace Bible Church are not magic men. It cannot heal you. The power is in their prayers that they gather together and pray over you. The reason that we call the elders is because the elders represent the church as a whole. As the elders pray over you, it's as if the entire church is praying for you. It's that serious, that significant. So they representing the whole church pray over you for your healing. And James says, as they pray, they anoint you with oil. And, and he doesn't explain what that oil is about. The Bible actually doesn't tell us for sure what's going on there. It could be medicinal. Oil was a common medicine in the ancient world, but that's probably not what's going on here. It's probably spiritually significant. Throughout the Bible, anointing someone with oil was commonly a sign of, of setting them apart to God. What we would call dedication. If you want to dedicate a person to God, you put oil on their forehead. I think that's what the elders are doing. They're dedicating the sick person to God. So there's no magic in the oil. When you're sick, don't rush for a bottle of olive oil. There's nothing special in that. The key is prayer. That's the main verb in this verse. Oil is just representing what the prayer is doing. The key is in prayer. So you call the elders to come together and pray for you. So three steps when we're sick. Or when someone we love is sick, we pray, we confess, and we call the elders when it gets really serious. Now, before we move on from this scenario, we need, to, we need to address a couple theological problems, theological questions that come up from this passage. A couple things that come to people's minds as they read this passage that can trip them up. And, and the first question is, well, is James 5 prohibiting getting medical help? James 5 says nothing about medicine. It's all about prayer. It's all about the prayer of faith, prayer believing that God will heal. So if you're supposed to pray that God will heal you, is that antithetical to faith to go to a doctor? It's actually what a lot of Christians believe. There's a whole branch of Christianity, Christian science, that believes that you should not go to doctors because of James 5 and passages like it. Uh, however, as we study scriptures, we look at the whole revelation of the Bible, we learn that that's not a good interpretation of that passage. Actually, God himself often uses medicine as the means through which he cures someone. It's a really interesting passage in Isaiah about a king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was dying from some terminal illness, a boil on him that, that was gonna kill him. And God shows up and he heals Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah responds in this song. In verse in Isaiah 38, Hezekiah says, the Lord will surely save me. So we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. And then you learn this interesting little tidbit after Hezekiah's song. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. A cake of figs, that sounds like weird alternative medicine to us. And their day that was mainstream medicine. That's good medicine is what they're applying to his wound. And what we're learning is that God often heals people through medicine. Medicine is a gift from God. Medicine, doctors, surgeons, they're all a gift from God. Think about it. God created the chemistry and biology that makes medicine possible. And God gave researchers and scientists and doctors and surgeons the brain to be able to figure out this medical stuff and be able to treat us. Medicine is a gift from God. And like all gifts, we should enjoy it and use it wisely. So when you're sick, find the best doctor you can and take the best medicines you can. Because God has given you your body as a gift and you should treat it well. Treat it well by seeking the best medical care you can find. But as you seek that medical care, as you go to the doctor, as you take your medicine, remember the limitations of modern medicine. All it can do is what is natural. Can't do anything supernatural. That's outside the realm of modern medicine. And sometimes what you really need is supernatural. There's no natural thing that's gonna heal you. And so even as you take your medicines, remember the most important thing is prayer because prayer taps you into power that can do supernatural things. So take your medicine, but pray because prayer is most important. Second question that often comes to people's mind as they wrestle with James 5 is, why doesn't God always heal? Why is not God always healed? Look at verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Will restore. Wow. That, that sounds pretty absolute. Will restore the one who is sick. It, it sounds like if you pray with faith, you will for sure get better. You will for sure be healed. And so if you don't get better, what is it proof of? You don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith, or the elders of the church don't have enough faith, because if you prayed with faith, you would be healed, guaranteed. That's how a lot of Christians interpret this passage, especially those who are part of charismatic denominations, that healing is guaranteed if you pray with faith. What do we do with the fact that many people here at Grace Bible Church are not healed, even when the elders pray over them? What do we do with that reality? Well, we study scripture and we find out that actually in the Bible, there are frequent cases where people who are faithful and pray faithfully are not healed by God. Find out that according to the Bible as a whole, verse 15 is not an absolute promise. God does not guarantee us healing if we pray with faith. So for example, 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul says, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Paul, the great apostle who had seen Jesus, guy had crazy faith, and he can't heal this guy. Second example, Paul's own life. Second Corinthians 12. Paul says of himself, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And when you study the context of Paul's life, uh, believe this is a physical ailment. That's the best interpretation of the passage. There is some chronic physical ailment that Paul suffers from. It may have had to do with his eyes. He had problems with his eyes during his lifetime. So some chronic ailment concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So God didn't heal Paul, despite his repeated faithful prayers. And God tells him, yeah, Paul, it doesn't matter how much, I'm not going to heal you. And here's why I'm not going to heal you because it is for your best and my glory that you stay sick. What has God promised to do for you in life? Has he promised to heal you? No. What God has promised to do for you is to give you what's best. Romans 8, 28, God will always do what's best for you. And what's best for you may or may not include a long life. It may or may not include physical healing. And that shouldn't surprise us because remember what we studied last week, whether you are healthy or whether you are sick, all of life is painful. And so if you get better from this particular ailment, it's not like life is going to be all rosy all of a sudden. Life this side of heaven is always full of pain and suffering. Our hope in life is not longevity. It is not physical health. What is our hope in life? To see Jesus. That is your only hope in life. Not getting better, but seeing Jesus. That is our hope. And so what's best for you might be physical healing. It might not be physical healing. Maybe it's better for you to die so that you can see Jesus sooner. That's actually how Paul looked at it. Paul in Philippians 1. Verse 23, he said, But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, meaning to die and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul did not want a long life. Paul didn't care about a healthy life. What Paul wanted was to see Jesus. That's all that really matters. And that should shape how we pray when we are sick or someone else is sick. Should you pray for healing? Absolutely. Absolutely. God tells you to do it. Pray that you will get better. Pray that that other person will get better. But as you pray, recognize that healing may not be what's best. And God is going to always give you what's best. He loves you too much to give you second best. So he's going to do whatever is best for you. And that may or may not include healing. So I think as we pray when we're sick or someone else is sick, we should pray like Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Pray for healing, but then say, not my will, but yours be done. Because God's the one who knows what's best for us. May his will always be done. That's why lots of people don't get healed, because healing would not be best for them. And God loves them too much to give them second best. Fourth scenario that James wants to lay out for us is sin. What do we do when we have sin in our lives or we see sin in someone else's life? How do we deal with that? Well, first let's talk about sin in our own lives. James has already told us when we have sin in our own lives, the response is always the same, we're to confess it. We're to confess our sins to God and to one another. You don't just do that when you're sick, you will always do that. Throughout life, we should practice confession. Confess your sin to God. That means to agree with God that you have sinned and confess your sins to one another to your accountability partners that means to bring the sin out into the light no longer to hide it we need to confess our sins to god and one another because that's what brings forgiveness and healing that's what we learn in the book of first john chapter 1 verse 9 many of you know this verse by heart if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness it is through confession to god and to one another that we experience forgiveness and cleansing. Now, that may raise a question in some of your minds. You may be asking, wait a minute. I thought that we experienced forgiveness once and for all when we believed the gospel. And that's true. The moment that you believe the gospel, the good news, that Jesus, the son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead, at that moment, all of your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven and you are filled with eternal life and you become a child of God. You can never lose that. However, at that moment that God gives you eternal life, he does not give you a free pass on sin. Sin continues to have consequences in this life. It can lead to sickness, it can lead to death, and according to John, it can lead worst of all to separation from God. Not eternal separation, but relational separation. When you sin, that sin creates a a barrier between you and your heavenly father, just like disobedience would create a barrier between you and your earthly dad. He's still your dad, you're still his child, but your disobedience makes you estranged. It strains your relationship. That's what happens with God. When we choose to sin, it strains our relationship. We, we push ourselves away from God. Fortunately, there's a way to fix that, and that's confession. You agree with God, confess your sins to God, confess your sins to one another, and God removes that relational separation and restores you to joy and peace. That's what confession does. It brings healing, it brings relational forgiveness when we sin. So when I sin, I am to confess my sins to God and to one another. I'm to have an accountability partner I'm confessing to on a regular basis. That's the idea there. Now, what about when it's not me sinning? What about when someone else sins? What about when I see another Christian in sin? How should I deal with that? That's the end of our chapter, end of the whole book, verses 19 and 20. Look with me there. James says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When we see another believer in sin, our response, what we should do is to confront, confront the sin, point out the sin, identify the sin, rebuke the sin to that other believer. And notice just a few things from the passage we just read. Confrontation is only for other believers, It's someone among us, another believer. We have no business confronting the world about their sin. Unbelievers don't need confrontation from us. They need the gospel from us. So this is not for unbelievers. This is for us, for those who have trusted in the gospel. When we sin, we need other believers to confront us and rebuke us about that sin. Okay, so it's for us. And and notice what James says here. The goal of this confrontation is restoration, to turn us away from sin. It's not just to make us feel bad, not just to make us look bad, it's to turn us away from sin and towards obedience. And notice the method here. When you see another believer in sin, who do you talk to about that? The other believer. You don't talk to other people about it. You don't post it on Facebook. You don't chat or gossip about it. You go to the person who's sinning privately, seeking their restoration. Actually, Jesus lays that out. We won't talk about this in detail, but Matthew 18, if you are wondering, how do I confront another person in sin? The primary passage you go to in scripture is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus lays out the process of confrontation. And just notice the beginning there. If your brother sins, go and show him his fall in private. In private. Don't go to other people. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So then you bring another couple witnesses, again privately confronting him. Finally, the passage says he still doesn't respond. That's when you turn to the elders of the church and they exercise church discipline. But the method of confrontation is always private. You're always secure with that information. You're always seeking their best in love and in grace. And the reason, the goal, the the reason that we confront one another, James says, according to verse 20, is because by confronting the sinner, number one, we can save his soul from death. Save his soul from death. We've studied that phrase as we've gone through the book of James. That's not eternal death. You're not saving him from hell. He's already a believer. He has eternal life. This is about saving his physical life. Sin has serious consequences, including physical death. By turning him around from his sin, you very well may save his physical life. That's the first reason we confront one another. The second reason we confront is to cover a multitude of sins. The idea is there through confrontation, through a loving rebuke to a brother or sister in sin, you can cover over their sins such that it's as if they had not sinned. You can bring healing to them as individuals, to a family, to a community, through confrontation. Okay, so confrontation is for the sinner's good. It's how we bring healing to them. Unfortunately, the problem for us is confrontation is pretty much the last thing any of us want to do. We hate hard conversations. We hate confronting someone over sin because then the relationship is going to be strained. And what if, what if they judge me back? What if they hate me? I I don't know how to deal with that. It's so uncomfortable. And so we avoid confrontation. And that's exactly like the person who can feel a tumor growing in their body and pushing on their organs and choose Hey, just to ignore it. I don't want to deal with it. It's too painful. It's too scary. So I'm just going to ignore it and pretend it's not there. Well, you can pretend it's not there until you're blue in the face. It's not going to go away. You cannot ignore sin just like you cannot ignore a tumor. What you need to do if you have a tumor is you got to go to a doctor and have a surgeon go after that tumor. He has to cut it out of you and deal with it so that you can get back to health. That's how we deal with sin. Surgically, we go after it, we identify it, we rebuke it so that it can be removed from that person's life so that they can have spiritual health. We need to love one another enough to confront each other when we see sin, I love how it's put in the book of Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Do we love one another enough to wound each other, to rebuke one another, to confront one another when we see sin, to just ignore it, to just kiss over it when you see sin is to act like an enemy. To be a friend, you got to confront sin. Let me give you a few practical tips If you see sin in a fellow believer's life, if you feel the Lord is calling you to confront that sin, number one, spend some time in prayer first. Don't be hasty to confront. You don't want a surgeon being hasty to operate so your friend doesn't want you to be hasty to confront. So spend time in prayer, praying that God will give you wisdom and insight. Second, spend time looking at your own life. So pray and then review, look over your own life for sin. That's what Jesus is getting at in his parable of removing the log from your own eye before you go remove the speck from your brother's eye. God wants you to help your brother remove that speck, but first you gotta deal with your own life. So deal with your own sin first, confessing your own sin. So pray, deal with your own life first, and then third practical tip, when you go to actually confront the person, I want there to be two words that come to your mind. Two key words, grace and truth. In any hard situation in life, anytime you got to talk about something hard, whether confrontation or anything else, your two key words are grace and truth. You got to have both. If all you have is grace, then there's not going to be any confrontation. You're not pointing out the sin. If all you have is truth, he's going to know how you feel about his sin, but he's going to hate you. And he's really not going to want to respond. You got to have both grace and truth. Okay, so James has covered a bunch of different scenarios in life this morning. He's equipping us. He's giving us the the tools that we need to deal with uh, the various circumstances that we will face in life. When you suffer or someone you know suffers, pray. When you're satisfied and happy and joyous, sing songs of praise. When you're sick, pray. Confess your sins. Call the elders. When you see sin in your own life, confess it. When you see sin in someone else's life, confront it. I want to end with just a little practical application. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that I'm, I'm grateful that this is our passage right before Christmas break. Here this Christmas break, a bunch of you are heading home, wherever that is, you're heading out of here. Um, those of you who live here, like me, staying here, uh, you're going to be really busy preparing for Christmas. You're going to be traveling. Um, because of that, all of us are going to be a little disconnected from each other and from our routines. Uh, that's why I believe that while Christmas is fun and wonderful, Christmas is incredibly dangerous. Spiritually speaking, the Christmas holiday, Christmas break, is an incredibly dangerous time of the year. It's dangerous because you are disconnected from your routines that keep you walking with the Lord, that keep you accountable, and you are disconnected from your relationships here in the body of Christ that encourage you and watch over you. Because of that, I I have found over the course of my life, and in my own life, and in watching Friends, uh, I have found that Christmas break, as wonderful as it is, it is prime time for the kingdom of Satan. Christmas break is like shooting season for Satan because he knows he's got us alone. We're off wherever it might be, disconnected from routines and from community that protects us. We are easy and vulnerable targets to him. And so I want to encourage you, whether you're a student or whether you're an adult, you need to go into Christmas break with your eyes wide open. You get a break from school. You don't get a break from God. You don't get a break from the spiritual life. Satan is certainly not going to give you a break over the next four weeks. So you need to go in with eyes wide open. In particular, you need to practice what James has laid out for us this morning. We need to be in prayer. Let's be praying for ourselves during this Christmas break, recognizing that we're going to come under attack. Let's be praying for one another over this Christmas break. Let's be praying for those who are sick. Don't forget to do that. It's so easy to forget those who are sick over Christmas break. Be be praying for those who are ill. Be praying also for those who are sick, but not with the disease. Those who are sick with with loneliness or heartache, Christmas break is like a kick in the gut to lonely people. So be praying for those who are suffering this Christmas break. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Maybe something has happened in their family that has caused grief to them. Be praying for one another. Um, In addition to praying for one another, uh, hold one another accountable. Over this Christmas break, we, we need each other. We need to be holding one another accountable. And so let me ask you, you need to have an answer to this question. Who will call you in two weeks to ask you how you're doing? Do you have a person? Whether you're, I don't care whether you're a student or an adult. Who's going to call you in two weeks? We all need to have someone call us in two weeks and ask us, how are we doing? Are you in the word Are you praying? Are you spending time in scripture? Are you obeying God? Are you resisting these areas of temptation that you have fallen to in the past? Who's gonna call you in two weeks? Make sure by the end of today, you have that question answered. You have some believer who is gonna call you in two weeks and whom you can also hold accountable because we gotta hold each other accountable in this life. Okay, so let's be praying for one another. Let's hold one another accountable and let's sing songs of praise to one another too. Let's encourage one another and share joy with one another as we go into this Christmas season. Don't get so distracted by presents and decorations that you forget what this is all really about. Let's go to the Lord and pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season of the year. We thank you for the the celebration of your son that he in grace and humility came uh, to earth 2,000 years ago, took on human flesh, lived for us, died for us, rose from the dead. We, we thank you for what we get to celebrate this Christmas break. But Lord, even in the midst of that good news, we, we recognize that this is a dangerous time for us, Lord. Our routines are are at an end. They're removed, Lord. For many of us, our Bible studies, our small groups are on hiatus. Our accountability relationships are on hiatus. We're gonna be spread apart from one another. Relationships at a distance. Father, we know that that makes us vulnerable, Lord. And so we come to you and we pray urgently and earnestly, Lord, that you would protect us. I pray for every person in this room, that your spirit would anoint them, that your spirit would fill them and protect them this Christmas break, that you would protect all of us physically, that you would also protect us more importantly, spiritually, that you would protect us from the evil one, from sin, from temptation, from discouragement, from loneliness. I pray, Father, help us to walk with you I pray that we would hold one another accountable. I pray that we would be in prayer for one another. I pray that each day of this Christmas break that you would bring someone to our minds whom we can pray for, whom we can lift up to you. I pray that we would love one another well this Christmas break through prayer and through accountability. Father, I pray that throughout this Christmas break, we would be singing songs of praise, that we would remember what Christmas is about, that we would celebrate it, that we would spread cheer and joy to one another by reflecting on the good and gracious God that we have. Thank you for Christmas, and thank you for this time in the book of James. May your spirit be with us and protect us and empower us, all for the glory and fame of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Christmas break.